All right, y'all. Here we are at episode 95 on our countdown to episode 100. I love a good countdown, but it is also just really important for me uh, to thank you all for continuing to listen um, as this community continues to grow. I am really honored and grateful um, for those of you that have been with me from the beginning and for those of you who are new listening to this podcast. And and one thing that I would be grateful for if you had the time and interest uh, is to leave a review, um, a rating, and share this podcast with those you think may benefit from it. That would mean the world to me and help us get the word out about this incredible show. So thank you so much for being along the journey. And we're going to continue with the countdown. Now on to the show. What I can do now is encourage people to hold those people accountable, the voters, the electorate. We're the people who hold those individuals accountable. So by telling my story, maybe that will encourage somebody who normally wouldn't vote or somebody who wouldn't care about democracy to just wake them up a little bit and say, you know what, you're right. Hey, this person did that. Oh, we can't, we need better than that. When you experience injustice, how do you respond? Do you immediately speak up and fight back? Maybe you get introspective and go deep into reflection, weighing out different options and scenarios before deciding how or whether to take action. Or do you suppress your authentic emotions and maintain a facade until you have figured out your next move? Now, my guest today in this really important Unburdened Leader conversation inspired these questions and reflections by watching him lead himself and others in the days, weeks, and months following the January 6th insurrection, facing many critics, threats, and risks. And many factors inform how we respond to threats and injustice. Our values, life experiences, personality and temperament, identities, privileges, just to name a few. So I caution against judging yourself or others for the responses to high stakes or often polarizing public situations. We don't know all the influences that inform responses, for better or for worse. Instead, pay attention to your charged responses to injustice and follow those trailheads to discover the internal influences that fuel your motivations, fears, and values. I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Like many of you, I watched the January 6th insurrection unfold in real time horrified and shocked. I could not believe what I was seeing. I kept shaking my head, yelling at the TV, and texting many of my friends and former colleagues in D.C. And as a former Capitol Hill Senate staffer and resident who deeply respects our democratic process, this felt extra personal. And as an experienced trauma therapist, I could not stop thinking about those who were there at the Capitol that day impacted by the insurrectionists 
those who were trapped and feared for their safety, and the Capitol Police officers and other officers and professionals who experienced repeated physical threats and verbal assaults. Now, I regularly see how responses to trauma are often misunderstood and even not seen. And I know some who were there that day that do not like talking about their experience at all and hold their pain close and private. And I've heard of others quietly speaking with their friends and colleagues and their therapists. Others have decided to talk about their experiences at significant costs and risks. And even a small handful of Capitol Police officers who were there that day tragically died by suicide which breaks my heart and enrages me towards the many who supported all that led to this day and continued to espouse vitriol. And when more footage aired and the stories of those who lived through the traumatic experiences, I worried how many people had their own personal experiences hijacked by the revisionist stories shared along with the, quote, Monday night quarterbacking on who did or did not do what utterly devoid of an understanding of trauma and the multitudes of normal responses that happen after experiencing trauma. And speaking with today's guest reminded me that healing differs based on the unique individual and that our environments and places of work can influence and sometimes constrain our healing process. Because we spend so much time in our workplaces, it makes sense that their values and culture seep into our identities. And if we're not careful, we can lose ourselves if we're not clear who we are and what we believe, separate from our workplace or other communities. And then my guest shared something really interesting in his response to the January 6th insurrection. For him, not speaking up would have felt inauthentic for him, leaving him feeling out of alignment. New York Times bestselling author Harry Dunn joined the United States Capitol Police in 2008 and served with the rank of private first class since 2011. He has been on duty for presidential inaugurations, joint sessions of Congress, State of the Union addresses, and hundreds of peaceful protests and demonstrations. And I have to say, too, I have such a special place in my heart for Capitol Police officers living within a couple blocks of uh, the Senate um, and having to see them every day going in and out of work. I just have so much respect for that organization. And Officer Dunn, he serves on the USCP crisis negotiation team as a crisis intervention officer. His training helps him respond to hostage or barricade situations and assist individuals who may be experiencing a mental crisis. And for Officer Dunn, January 6, 2021, forever changed his life when he bravely protected the U.S. Capitol and its lawmakers during the violent attack by insurrectionists that day. Since then, he's been outspoken about his harrowing experience, testifying in congressional hearings, and speaking in the media about the violence he experienced that day and its aftermath. For his heroic efforts defending American democracy, Dunn received the Presidential Citizens Medal, the Congressional Gold Medal, the Capitol Police Service Medal, the Capitol Police Achievement Medal, the Gus Herrenberg Award, and the African American Chamber of Commerce in New Jersey 
and the Concerned Black Men Award. His memoir, Standing My Ground, A Capitol Police Officer's Fight for Accountability and Good Trouble After January 6th, provides a crucial firsthand account of what happened on that fateful and shocking day in American history and its ramifications for our political and legal systems, for democracy, our communities, and us as individuals. Officer Dunn speaks candidly about the trauma he experienced and the larger socio-political and historical significance of the events he witnessed. He's a prominent and essential voice and shares his firsthand experiences with audiences that include government groups, law enforcement, mental health professionals, colleges and universities, and community organizations. Now listen for Officer Dunn's reasoning behind his commitment towards accountability, and as he says, good trouble, for all involved with the January 6th insurrection. Pay attention to when Officer Dunn shares about his healing process from January 6th and really what fueled his healing. It was a bit surprising to me, but really, really powerful. And notice when Officer Dunn shares his desire to impact those who would not normally care about democracy and his hopes to encourage them to move from indifference to action. Now, please welcome Officer Harry Dunn to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Officer Dunn, welcome to the Unburdened Leader podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. First, I want to go back to January 6, 2021. You went to work that day serving as a Capitol Police officer like you have for several years. And I, I'm gonna, we're going to build a lot in our conversation, but I'd love for you to read an excerpt from your new book. Congratulations, by the way, your new book. Thank you. Standing My Ground, A Capitol Police Officer's Fight for Accountability and Good Trouble After January 6th. And yeah, so if you want to go ahead and start at the place we talked about, sure, and then we'll follow up after that. I strapped on a steel plate, steel chest plate for protection and grabbed my M4 to answer the request for help on the west side of the Capitol. I scrambled down the long flight of marble steps that led up to my post. When I got to the bottom, I gave my weapon to Officer Keith Atkins. I was allowed to move in response to the call, but the weapon wasn't. It is permanently assigned to that post, so I had to hand it to him. I went to a nearby kiosk and grabbed a second M4 that we keep stored there if needed. I knew I was not going to face what I was hearing on our radios without a weapon. I also grabbed two cases of water. Based on the radio traffic, I knew officers would need it. I just didn't know how badly. I passed the north end of the Capitol on my way to the west side. Nothing there. When I got to the west side, I immediately saw the scaffolding for Joe Biden's presidential inauguration. It had already been set up for the ceremony, which was scheduled to be in that space exactly two weeks from that day. I looked down below to my right and I was stunned. What I saw was like a scene from a gladiator movie. It would seem like a sea of people, Capitol Police officers and Metropolitan DC police officers were fighting desperately, hand to hand with rioters across the West Lawn. Until then, I had never seen anyone physically assault a Capitol Police officer or an MPD officer, let alone witness mass assaults being against law enforcement officers. 
I could see rioters hitting officers with flagpoles, sticks, and metal bike racks they had torn apart. They were throwing batteries, canned food, anything they could to hurt our officers. You could hear the screaming and hollering as the battle raged on. Blood was streaming down officers' faces. They were yelling, grunting, and trying to force the rioters back. Many of them were blinded and coughing after being doused with peppers and spray, bear spray, and even WD-40. It was crazy. We used the water I bought to wash the irritant out of their eyes. And then, when they were good enough, they would go back into the fight. Everything was chaos and madness. Officers fighting with rioters, then getting relief. Officers heading back to the fight, then returning because they needed their eyes and skin flushed with water to wash off the spray. At some point, the radio blasted. Attention all units, the dispatcher said. The Capitol had been breached. So I'm curious, what do you notice now, Officer Dunn, emotionally and physically? Do any thoughts or images come up for you after reading this excerpt, or what are you noticing in your body? The thing is, a lot of people have always asked me, do you have like flashbacks to that moment? Do you, when you go to certain parts of the building, do you like relive it? Um, the answer to that, it's, it's weird. I, I never stopped thinking about it. So it's not like a flashback. It's like a constant loop um, that's been mm-hmm. playing in my head over and over, um, coming up on three years. So it's not really a flashback. I've just kind of just um, dealt with it just um, on on replay over and over in my head. So Is there anything that stands out even in this moment as you read that moment that day? Is there anything that seems, nope, it's just kind of that constant? The thing is, like I said, that, that may sound cold or like distant, from it, but it's not like I, nothing new. I, everything that I read is what I've been seeing and thinking about ever since that day. So it's not like, you know, I'm trying to forget about it or trying not to remember. I mean, maybe I am. I don't know. It's like a bedfellow for you. It's just there. It's, it's something that's a part of you yeah. and your story and your system, your nervous system. Yeah. It just exists. So. What were you most afraid of that day? I the, the afraid of the unknown. Um, like I mm. said, I, I didn't know on, on January 6th. I never even heard the word insurrection before. You know, that's not until afterwards um, you heard the political pundits start talking about it and everything like that. The fear of the unknown, because we didn't know how it was going to end. I didn't know if we were just going to be overrun, overrun and just stuck in the Capitol where what was going to happen with the military going to be surrounding the Capitol. We didn't know how it was going to end, whether we were going to go home to our loved ones or not. Um, that was the, that was my biggest fear. How was this going to end? And it eventually did in terms of that particular fight, even though we've seen the after aftermath obviously yeah. continue. But how did you feel in those immediate days after the insurrection? Um, that, that gambit of emotions that I had run through, um, just sad, angry, hurt. Um, I I had moments where I just wanted to be isolated because one of the things I've learned with isolation, people think that it's bad. I try Mm -hmm. to use it for good because it gives me time because I don't even know what I'm feeling. I don't know my thoughts. I don't know. Am I being rational or am I being irrational? Um, so just having that time alone and I didn't want to be around anybody because like I said, I, 
me, I'm an empathetic person and I like to take on people's problems and hey, I like people to vent to me if they're not doing okay. But I when you don't have that capacity, um, you know, whether you're around somebody or not, you tell them to talk, you just kind of want to ask. So I, I wanted to be alone because I wasn't even, you know, in a healthy place for myself. So I couldn't take on anybody else's problems, even if they didn't ask me to. Uh, but just just the, the the depression and sadness that I felt um, for our country, and then obviously seeing the physical tolls that happened that day, the the physical attacks that were um, that my coworkers suffered, um, that was just just a horrifying uh, moment in time. You know, you talk about isolation, and you know, I'm sure. I'm sure like, you know, a lot about trauma, but I'm like, as someone who's been working with trauma for two decades and helping people heal from it, everything you're saying sounds normal. And even that isolation piece is someone who you just self-describe as someone who's deeply empathetic. You instinctively knew you needed a space to metabolize, not all that just happened to you, but to your work environment and also to our country. So what at what point, though, that did that isolation kind of move to it's not okay anymore to be isolated what when did what were the tells that that wasn't working as something a natural response to the incredible overwhelm to oh this is going dark so trying to process it um you trying to figure out everything how do i really feel i just right but then that went to anger and that's when i knew it wasn't i had to start saying something because now i got mad and it was time to fight back like, mm-hmm. you know, hell no, like what was going on with these individuals and narratives had already been started to be shaped about what happened and what didn't happen. And no way would I allow people that were not even necessarily that weren't there, but to downplay the the violence that me and my coworkers went through that day. So being able to fight back kind of thing, I guess, um, so that that isolation, I didn't even know if I had the opportunity to really process. I didn't know. I, I know I did. I didn't really process and heal before I immediately got angry, and mm. um, anger took over. Anger is an interesting emotion that I think so many of us have a complex relationship with for a variety of reasons. Yeah, and I I I am a big fan of it when it's channeled towards healing and change, but it can go to places that don't make us safe or others safe. What was your relationship with anger prior to January 6th and where is it at today? So I'm very results oriented or solution (laughs) oriented. So like I say, just don't be mad for no reason for the sake of being mad but use that to fuel uh, uh, something that you can see results from. And uh, I think the whole good trouble thing that, you know, that's part of the tag, the quote in my book, um, you know, let's get in some good trouble, even, you know, cause this is wrong and it's time to fight back. People, you know, associate anger with bad things, but that's not necessarily, I don't believe that to be true at all. It's a natural reaction. Um, the actions that stem from your anger is what makes it either bad or good. I would be remiss to not ask, though, 
not only as you know, Capitol Police officer, but as a, a black man in America and anger. Uh, one thing that has been loud and clear to me is that that's a anger and being black is could be a lethal combination. How do you navigate that? By by not being impulsive. Yeah, definitely with black being black too. But I think that's with anybody when you're anger and you react out of anger. That's definitely that's that always usually almost always leads to a bad result. Um, so you can use your brain and be anger. Don't be impulsive. And I think I know it's easier to say that in the moment. Um, the difference, I think, between rage and anger is one's controlled and one's not. You have to be thoughtful about your actions because even if you're angry, um, all your actions will have a consequence at the end of it, whether it's a good or a or bad one. Is there a point where your anger felt like it moved to impulsive or it wasn't strategic, especially in the early days after January 6th? Yeah. And then I got a lawyer because I was like, <laughs> this is wrong. <laughs> I was like, I need somebody. To, I need some help. I need some help. And I am I, I the way I'm thinking right now is going to get me fired or I don't know. So I got to I need some help. So I got a lawyer and <laughs> I let him be that my conscience and my in, my impulse control. <laughs> and even just something as simple as, as a tweet or something like tweeting something out. Um, he would say, "Hey, send me everything first before you hit send," and that that saved me a couple of times because some things that I wanted to say publicly, he was like, "Nope, we're not going to go with that. Let's let's change it to this." And you know, just that was that's the impulse control, I guess, though that went from rage, rage tweeting to angrily tweeting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're you're just reminding me of just the power of even when we have crises in our life being so strong in our values, having clarity of values. Like for you, you're saying you're very results oriented and very strategic and also surrounding ourselves with support that we can't go it alone. Getting getting a lawyer and getting other supports that I know that you've done yeah. over the last few years. That's a great example. I'm curious how did writing your book, like putting your words to paper, impact your relationship with what happened on January 6th and all that followed? Um, it reached more people, I guess. Uh, one thing that I've always said is that my story is my story. Mm. Whether people agree with it, disagree with it, champion it, applaud it, laud it, it doesn't matter. Um, it's not going to change because this is mine. And when we start trying to speak for people, like I don't like using speaking in absolutes or anything like that. Like I very, everybody's different. We, we, all the millions and millions of people on the earth to insinuate that all of us feel the same thing about every single situation or, you know, even like demographics of people or all Democrats say this or all Republicans say that or all right. black people say this and all white people, all women, all men. No, it's, it's very... <laughs> It's dangerous to put people in, in boxes and things. So when you say January 6th police officers and I'm speaking for all the officers, no, I'm speaking for Harry Dunn. And this is my story. Um, so when I tell my story, I tell it like that. This is my experience, period. And whether people like it or not, the good thing about it 
is that when people do acknowledge that this is your story and they support you and, and say, keep going, it kind of like, oh, all right. So this is good. It's good that it's landing uh, in a positive way, but it's not going to um, help me define or change or what my story is. It sounds like it almost concretized and and made it more solid. And so the writing process itself, though, is so, I mean, I'm a big fan of writing in the name of healing, just period. Um, yeah. And so how, how was that? Pro- I mean, writing a book is its own beast and its own task. But, you know, how did that help you metabolize? Yeah. So when you say writing as a part of healing, that's interesting to say that because I, um, I use my phone and I do like voice notes to myself all the time. I would talk into my phone and then, you know, type, ter- translate to, to text. Um, but I would just be rambling in my phone for about 40 minutes at a time, just talking to myself, just my thoughts. And that was part of the healing process. And I had dozens of those recordings already. So when I decided to write a book, I was like, shoot, I already got a lot of it <laughs> right here. So the healing process was me yelling into my phone, screaming, um, but then it translated into uh, a book. It was healing. You wrote about this in your book, and this really stood out to me. Take me back to when you received your first press request to interview you about your experience on January 6th. You really navigated a lot of trade-offs. Can you share what those trade-offs you were weighing as you thought about sharing your story which you did at first anonymously, and then you decide to be public. So the thing is with, with, with my job, um, we have a no speaking to the media kind of policy and stuff like that. And that this was where the, the rage went into. I didn't care. Um, and I was prepared to violate those. And, you know, I didn't care because in the name of doing what's right, kind of thing. And I don't look at myself as some type of like martyr or, you know, or rebel. I'm going to break all the rules. No, that's, that's not me. Um, but it was very difficult to navigate, which like I said, was one of the reasons why I did it anonymously speak out about my experiences. One of the things though, on a sidebar that I did learn in this whole process is that there's Harry Dunn, the public servant, the officer, and there's Harry Dunn, the citizen. And a lot mm. of the things that I'm speaking about is Harry Dunn, the citizen. I don't speak about things in my official capacity at, at my job, which we, all, we have the right to do. We have the right to speak out as public citizens. Now, my job may have made people know who I am, but I've always been this, you know, I grew into being this person who cares about this country and loves democracy. Um, but this is just Harry Dunn, the person. So that kind of made the speaking out a little bit easier once I framed it as that. Like, like even when I do interviews, I tell them, don't use my title. Um, when I went to the White House and I got the um, Presidential Citizens Medal, um, some officers that I went with, they wore their uniforms. I went in a suit. Mm. I didn't want to be associated with that. Not, not, not in a bad thing, because I, this was a, this is, I am a citizen of this country. And this is why I'm speaking out because I care about my country and I care about what it looks like. Um, and I want to be able to distinguish between, hey, this guy's an officer and hey, this guy's a citizen who just loves his country. 
And um, that's one of the reasons I chose to not wear my uniform when I went to the White House. But getting back to the uh, the media and stuff like that, when I, once I was able to shape that thought process uh, during the media was very, um, it became easier to do because I, and also, like I said, I had a lawyer too that helped me, uh, <laughs> that helped me navigate those tough experiences. But after being, doing my first anonymous interview, uh, the guy reached back out to me and he said, hey, Harry, um, this, uh, this interview kind of blew up and people are asking me who you are and, you know, journalists, we don't, we are our sources and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I, I've never had this many people asking, reaching out to me ever. Um, so I, uh, I was like, well, give my name to the five, five people that you trust the most. You can get five people and that's it. Um, and they can't share that my info with anybody and people that you trust. And, um, you know, I talked to a couple people, some people just, I just didn't like it. Or maybe it was just me still in that space where angry, I don't want to talk to nobody, but I did find the one fit, um, with a guy named Victor Donez, uh, from ABC and Victor and I are still friends to this day. Um, actually last week we went out and, um, had some, uh, had some cigars together. Uh, Victor's a good guy and he introduced me to Pierre Thomas and their main, Pierre and I still stay in touch to this day. Um, their main thing that I think that resonated with me the most is we want to tell your story and tell it right. Your story, not anybody else's, just you. We don't care about anybody else's agenda. We're not going to, this isn't one of those, Hey, so we're not going to ask leading questions. We just want you to talk about what you went through and that's it. And um, that was very important to me. Like I just said, uh, being able to tell my story um, was important to me. And uh, that's, I think that's why the, that relationship is still ongoing to this day. So I'm hearing you say that what's driving you to continue to speak up, to testify, to share what happened that day is not solely or primarily driven by your work, but by who you are and yeah. your values and your passions. Did you get any pushback from your fellow officers? I remember watching that that day. No, Did- no, no. I think some of them asked. And I, you know, I shared briefly, like, I accept this award as a citizen, this citizen Harry Dunn, not police officer Harry Dunn. Because, and another thing, like, you know, I, my coworkers and, you know, hell, I was fortunate. I did not receive the level of uh, brutality and violence that a lot of yeah. my coworkers did. I, 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 I escaped that day without the physical injuries. You know, I got a, a scuff here and, a, and some pepper spray there, but nothing that would, you know, debilitate me f- for months, weeks, years um, in doing my job. Yeah. Um, and that's another thing. So I, I accepted it not because of what I did on that day, but what I've done in the days following, um, speaking out for accountability, speaking up for what's right, um, getting in good trouble, Citizens Award, uh, um, participating in this democracy at the highest level. And um, that's why it was important to me in that capacity. And another capacity that you really, um, in terms of your own self-leadership is deciding to be a witness in several insurrectionist trials, including folks from the Oath Keepers who got pretty serious sentences. 
and testifying before the Congressional January 6th committee that the House had. How did sharing your testimony help or hurt you in the name of healing your trauma? Well, I'll focus on the, I don't say the hurt part, but this has the potential to hurt people. Um, like just for example, the um, the January 6th tapes have just been released with some of the pub to the public and stuff like that. Um, and now people are posting like little clips and say, oh, look, it was a tour visit and blah, blah. So it's just like a lot of gaslighting that can occur. So a lot of times me remaining silent. Um, this world is cruel. This world yeah. is cruel. And whether you, you're feeling sad or dead, bad about it, you know, imagine, imagine on January 6th, people making police officers the bad guy that day. And then you're upset because of the injuries and violence you and your coworkers faced. And then they're mad at you because you're upset. Like they, that's the type of stuff that can come forward from being public and stuff like that. Like, and I'm not equating January 6th and you know, sexual assault, but just let's, let's try to draw this parallel for a second. Like just the, the, the adage where if a woman is raped or sexually assaulted and they say, well, what did she wear? What did she have on? Like, like how dare you? How dare you? It doesn't matter. How, might, how not hold the people responsible for those actions, their actions that they hold them accountable and leave the victims out of it? So that that's one of the ways that can hurt you. But but in the ways in the flip side, the ways that it can be helpful is one, you're telling your story. So it's healing, you know, being able to talk about it, even in the times where like you may leave a counseling session in tears and saying, I feel like crap. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I I'm gonna go to my bed and I'm not getting out of it for two days. But that's part of healing. You know, you gotta you gotta hurt a little before you can heal. And um, so even in the midst of all the tears and the, you know, the, the rapid heart beating, um, it's still healing because I'm able to do a lot more now than I was able to in the beginning. When I think of you sitting in the courtrooms, seeing some of these individuals who really had big plans on January 6th to do even worse harm and you're and they're, you know, reauthoring <laughs> gaslighting that day having worked with a lot of folks who are survivors of sexual assault and other kinds of traumas who who when they choose to testify there's a lot of vulnerability and is this going to help move them forward in their healing or not right there's a decision a lot of people have to make when you're sitting in that witness stand did that move you towards healing in those moments no no i won't necessarily say that did that was just doing what was right uh, for me, that you know, that necessarily wasn't really healing. It was aligned. It was aligned with your values. Yeah, yeah, it was. It was necessary part of a continuation. One, of, like I said, of public service and moral yeah. clarity, kind of thing. I don't think wow. that it was necessarily healing per se. Um, but it was alignment. Correct. Correct. Which kept, I think, probably in, in my generous assumption helped move the healing process on a macro level. Maybe that is just that you were aligned. You were doing the things that were true to you. Is that accurate? Yeah. Staying true to yourself and doing what you believe is right. Like I said, it, it's an alignment. Yeah. That, that's, that's a fair, that's, that's accurate. And a, and a little different when you were sitting um, and testifying before the January 6th committee, it was a little different feeling 
Was that different for you or was that the same situation? Again, just alignment. It wasn't as much, this will help me heal versus this is me being true to me. In that moment, I'm just trying to think about actually when I testified. A lot of times when I think about testifying with James Six Committee, I think about what everything that happened afterwards. Mm. But in that moment, I just know that I was really thirsty. <laughs> I drank like... I drank like 12 bottles of water. <laughs> I think that's where, I mean, you know, that was, it was powerful and everything like that, but I didn't see it at, at that moment um, in the, on the stage that it was, I didn't realize, you know, after it was only like a couple of days or a day or so after that so many people had reached out to me and the whole country at that point knew who I was and blah, blah. Um, but in that well, moment, wait, wait, was- no, blah, blah, blah here. Just a second. Wait. So the oh, days sorry. after <laughs> I'm not going to minimize it, allow you to minimize that this because it had such a significant impact on me. And I know so many people. So after that January 6th testimony to to the House uh, committee, what what stood out to you then in those days that you still that still seem poignant to you or powerful to you? This is <laughs> this is crazy because. Let's talk about how the um, humans process stuff, or yes, the, yep. the, the, how how silly we are. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna talk about how silly us humans, silly humans. I'm gonna think about how we are real quick. Okay. So you have ten people. You got you got a new shirt, right? And you go see ten people, and people ask you, "Hey, what do you think of this shirt?" and Individual one, oh, it's a maid. Oh, that looks great. Where'd you get it? I want to get one for my friend. Oh, that would look great on my sister. Oh, I want one. Oh, girl, you look great. Well, and then that one person says, eh, it's all right. Yeah. It looks cheap. Yes. Yep. So the nine people, we <laughs> totally discredit everything they just said and give that one person all the space in our mind. Yep. And now that one person is occupying our thoughts and making us questioning our self-worth and oh what maybe this shirt is ugly and the other nine people just don't exist anymore. So that's how I felt about January 6th. Like this whole world, for lack of a better term, loving on me. And then you got, you know, a small percentage of, you know, the the, the MAGA faction of the world um attacking me and doing this and that. And and I focused on those individuals and stopped thinking about the Millions of people who did support me. And that's just that's just us being silly humans, I guess. <laughs> it's also our hardwiring though. Yeah, I mean, it, it really that's is the problem. That's how it we is. are. That's how we yeah. are. But but being able to shape my perspective and um focus on the people. Some people you're not just gonna reach, period. And what the sooner you the sooner you realize that in life, you'll uh, you'll stop fighting unwinnable battles. Um, And then you focus on the ones that can be won. And that's where I'm at now. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. Navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes when the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you feel rock solid on your plan and action, finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business 
and leading in our complex and often polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you and where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than you were taught. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. Do you have any regrets about telling your story publicly, whether it's in your book or testifying? No, I don't. Um, I do wish in hindsight, everything I could have said something that more moving or powerful um, that would have swayed uh, a few more senators to vote to impeach him. Um, So we wouldn't have to deal with the potential of him being back in the White House again. And you're referring to the um, impeachment, the second impeachment. Second impeachment of, after January 6th. A former uh, President Donald Trump. Yeah, there were 57, I think, that voted to, and I think they needed 60. Um, and that's not a regret on anything that I did. Um, that they, they made their decisions, and but maybe if I could have said something a little bit more, I don't know. There's parts of you that wonder, is there something more I could have done, Correct. could have said that would have shifted this so we'd be in a different place Correct. today? That's, that's, I think that's, that sounds, sounds reasonable given yeah. everything we're navigating and it's, and given your commitment to, um, to sharing your story and, and to democracy. Do you have places where you can share your story privately, unedited, unfiltered, that are safe yeah. And contained and, and is that something you continue to utilize? Yeah, I, I got a, a very strong support circle. Um, I mentioned my my friends and my family in my book um, that are just there just to receive me, um, not even ask any questions, but just just listen. And a lot of times that's just needed. Uh, sometimes you don't want to really answer questions; you just want to talk. And then you're like, okay, okay, I'm here. If you, okay, anything else, bro? Or, you know, just being there with your family and your loved ones, just, but yeah, very close support circle is very necessary. So, How is your daughter doing, you know, cause you're very public and how is she doing? I know you were very protective for what you wrote in your book of her that day like when you were connecting, you didn't want her to know real time, which I felt that in my bones too, if I were as, as a parent, Yeah. Um, but you know, she, she's, she's old enough to know. That her dad's on a lot of TV screens. She ain't paying and- attention to it. I'm telling you, she, she, I'm telling you, she is so, she will humble the hell out of me because I'm like, Daphne, did you, did you see, uh, did you see, did you see daddy? 
No. See you later. <laughs> what were you doing? Oh, okay, cool. So let me tell you about my day, daddy. And I'm like, wait. <laughs> so she don't, she not, nah, it's okay. not a big deal to her. Um, Very she's grounding a, she's though, a, she's which is good, good. She's a good kid though. And, um, and, and like I said, that when you talk about times, just being able to detach from things, just being around her and spending time with her kind of like quells the, uh, the noise of everything. So it's just me and her. Yeah. What a gift. Yeah, that's, def- that's, definitely I feel, is. I feel that. Well, so one of the things that really compelled me to reach out to you was kind of what you experienced was at your job. And many people experience workplace trauma, but I have yet to find someone who experienced workplace trauma while the whole world watched it yeah. real time, along with subsequent very public investigations and commentary in the following days, weeks, and months, you continue to work and do your job to protect all who work and visit the Capitol, including the people who now deny the same people who we have videos running in fear from the insurrectionists who deny the severity of what happened on January 6th and also continue to defend those who attacked you and so many of your fellow officers. How has continuing to work for the Capitol Police impacted your healing process, for better or for worse? This is the moment where you have to... All right, so I played sports growing up, and I played on team sports, and I've always been part of a team and knowing that it's not just about you. So continuing to do my job, it gives me that moment of Think of something bigger than yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, what are you doing? I'm sitting here protecting. And then people say, you're protecting people who denied what you went through. No, I'm protecting an institution. I'm protecting mm-hmm. a seat that will exist after this person is gone and before this person even existed. I am protecting an institution Um which I, which I hold dearly, regardless of who is in the seat or not. Um, what I can do now is encourage people to hold those people accountable. And those the people, the voters, the electorate, we're the people who hold those individuals accountable. So by telling my story, maybe that will encourage somebody who normally wouldn't vote or somebody who wouldn't care about democracy to just wake them up a little bit and say, you know what? You're right. Hey, this person did that. Oh, we can't. We need better than that. Like I said, uh, uh, results oriented. You know, <laughs> let's just stop focusing on. All right, I'm just mad. He's in it. Well, they're not going anywhere unless they get voted out. So, <laughs> you know, one of the things I've found in working with folks who've experienced all kinds of trauma is that the most difficult part of healing isn't from what was actually perpetrated against them. It was from those who watched and didn't do anything or didn't support or validate what happened. That seems to be where the lingering healing is for so many people, which it just it just stood out to me. Like, how are you navigating that with with folks who are who stay silent, who or minimize or deny your experience on that day? You know, that's, I always say to some people, to people when I decide to engage with somebody, especially if somebody doesn't 
agree with or believe with it. Is there anything that I can say or show you to get you to have a different perspective? Hmm. And a lot of times it's not simple as a yes or no answer, but people are out here denying blatant facts that I've done engaging with them. All right. It's not, this is not a, we'll agree to disagree moment because it's not a disagreement about what the facts are. If we can't even agree on the facts, then this conversation is pointless to have. Um, so that's kind of like we talked about earlier, protecting my peace. I'll engage with people that want to actually have real discussions and stuff like that. Maybe somebody does think the election was stolen. Okay, well, let's talk about that. And this is what is found. Well, I don't think that's legitimate. All right, then this conversation's over. Because if we don't agree on what's legitimate, what's le- you 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 got to protect your peace and and who you engage with. Like I said, there's going to be a population of people that you can't reach no matter what. Um, so I don't even engage with those individuals that may want to uh, challenge what I've done or what I've said. Or I, I don't really have anything for them. What's standing out to me is you really aren't putting your worth and your value in the opinions of others. Yes. It is clear. You're like, I know what happened to me and I believe me and I believe in democracy. I believe in my values. I believe in these things. I am willing to have a conversation with difference, but I'm not willing to let you have a say over my worth and my experience. Am I hearing that correctly? You know what's awesome? Is that what by embracing that, it's easy for you to see other people's perspectives. So, you know what? This is my experience. This is my experience, right? Yes. All right. Well, this was mine. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Thanks for sharing your experience with me. And it's easy to admit, not to say that you're wrong, that you see somebody else's a different way. Like something I may not have ever thought of. Like, And that's what we do. We make everything about us and we force it on other people. Instead of just realizing that every single individual is an individual with an individual story and an individual perspective. Hey, I did not know that that was your story. Wow. Okay. Thanks for sharing it with me. What questions remain unanswered or frustrations still exist that need to be addressed today for you? So I talked in my book, this actually picked, I didn't think this was going to get this much traction. A lot of people asked me about this when I wrote in my book. Um, about the uh, the riot helmets and everything like that. And so I believe in giving other people, um, I have a platform now, but I wanted to share it with some of my coworkers. So I interviewed um, Christine in the book um, and a couple other people that I just used. Christine's a, co- a, co- a coworker, yeah, right? Yeah, Christine's a coworker of mine. And um, she told me, I didn't know that because that wasn't, that wasn't me that day that was told to leave my gear or um, on a bus or something like that. I I don't believe in conspiracy theories or anything like that, but I don't think that it was like a setup or something like that. It could be just as simple as incompetence on somebody. Um, but that was that's a question that I have. But I think the bigger question is um, when is accountability going to come? Because at the time that I wrote the book, Jack Smith had not brought forth any charges uh, against uh, the former president. He has now, but my book was already completed by the time that was done. Um, So now it's just a waiting game and to see uh, what's going to happen from here. 
What does accountability then look like to you? What will feel like accountability? You know, I, I get asked that in the courtrooms. People ask me, are you happy with this sentence and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think accountability is just, you know, whatever it takes to deter an individual or individuals from committing those actions again. It's, a, it's I think it's like a, de- a deterrence. That's what accountability it looks like for me. Um, I don't celebrate anybody's jailing or imprisonment or that's not a time to celebrate. Although <laughs> if and when Donald Trump is, you know, jailed or, you know, sentenced or whatever, I, I, I will have a celebratory beverage, <laughs> um, but it'll be short lived uh, because like I said, it's just a, it's not a, it's a sad day, especially when those, their actions that brought them to that place are based on lies. And um, it's just a sad day that there are people willing to go to jail for causes that aren't even true. Right. What do you want to say or what do you say to those members of Congress in particular um, who still minimize or tell a different reality of what happened on January 6th, these same folks that you work with and support and protect? I don't have any words for them. Um, my words are for their constituents and their um, the voters and the American people. Those are my words before. What are your words to the, the, their constituents? I, the world's on fire right now. And I would like to use my book as a little bit of a fire extinguisher. Um, the importance of our voting. Um, members of Congress can only do what their constituents allow them to do. Because if they don't, they get voted out. That's just, that's how it works. And I think educated voters are the best voters. So be engaged and be engaged and see what's going on in your communities, see what's going on in the country, and to say, am I okay with what is happening here? And if you're not, if you're not, then you hold your representative making those decisions on your behalf, you hold them accountable and saying, this is not what I want. This is what I want. What do you say to those who say my vote doesn't matter? It doesn't. I'm overwhelmed. Everyone's corrupt. I'm tapping out. So what if everybody did that? Just for, like I said, for example, on January 6th, there were hundreds and hundreds of officers there and you had four testify and look at all the, the noise that four people made, Mm. you know, the good trouble that four officers made out of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds who were there that day. One pebble into an ocean can cause ripples that can alter the whole ocean. You can't do it by yourself, but you can inspire somebody or your, your one vote, it matters. Walk me through what you're working on now that supports not just your healing process while you continue to advocate for accountability for all involved in January 6th. Well, you know, still promoting the book, you know, getting the message out there, encouraging. It makes a great Christmas gift or um, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, um, whatever, you know, you want to celebrate. Or if even if you don't, it just makes a good, thoughtful gesture to somebody. Um, but just promoting that and continuing to, um, like I said, I still working and promoting uh, democracy and people able to express their First Amendment rights, working at the Capitol um, people's coming up there still protesting and giving them a safe environment to do it in. 
and the members of Congress. So that's what I'm still working on because it's a never-ending battle. And that that supports both your healing and your advocacy work, both of them. The you're healing part, because like, like we talked about earlier, it's an alignment. It's a continuation yeah. of doing what's right to do. And that keeps my moral compass. Actually, it makes me feel even better about myself when I see somebody who may not agree with me or saying that I didn't go through it. And me being able to stand up and still protect their their rights for them to do what they're for their right for them to have that opinion, it kind of makes me feel good about myself. Like Being in alignment really is an important part of our healing absolutely. process. That's definitely standing out. And I, I'd be remiss not to ask, how uh, could a possible run for the seat? Congressman John Sarbanes will be vacating this term. Yeah. Support your commitment to both healing and accountability. Yeah, it, it would definitely support it. You know, what better way to continue with a continuation of public service than to you know, run for office or to serve the community, to serve the country even more. Um, it's, it's a decision I'm not prepared to make, but it's not off the table. Um, I'm definitely thinking about it and, you know, making sure I could say I'm a very introspective person. I like to be very introspective. I, I pay attention to myself and it's important for me to make sure that um, if I do it, I'm all in and not just, you know, next step kind of thing. I could tell that. Yeah, it's it's not a luke you're not a lukewarm person. Yeah, correct. Yeah, I hear that. Yeah, I don't even give you shower um, till it's all the way hot. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. I I wanna ask so many more questions, but I wanna see how this story continues to evolve. But I've got some fun quick fire questions okay. that I always ask my guests at the end sure. of our conversation. So what are you reading right now? Um the reviews of my book. <laughs> no, um, you know what? I'm, I this may, this may sound weird to me. I'm not a big reader as far as like books and stuff like that. I don't. I'm not a big book reader. I read newspaper articles. I read um, blogs and stuff like that that people put out about the news because I like getting diff- people different people's opinions. I mean, even mm-hmm. like the, uh, the 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 right wing stuff. I, I'll read that and just to see what's out there. So I am always reading different newspaper articles and um, online articles and watching the news. I'm, in, I'm ingrained, engrossed in the news like all the time. Like, even on like a, a Saturday night at like three in the morning, if I wake up, I'm going to put on like MSNBC or something. You know, <laughs> it's just, it's just, I'm ingrained in it. I'm engrossed in it. So I try to stay up to date with all current events. But I don't, I don't really read too much. I don't like to sit still long enough to um to read a book. <laughs> that fits. That yeah. fits. What song are you playing on repeat right now? I there's an um there's a Michael Jackson song that I heard and it's called We're Almost There. And it's a great um up tempo mix. It's a, somebody remastered it or something like that. But I listened to that yesterday. I listened to it like five times. I'm like, man, this is good. I like that. Yeah. What is the best TV show or movie that you've seen recently? I'm a big Saturday Night Live fan. Um, movie that I've seen recently. Um, and I love Black Panther too. But that was that was a little while ago, but that's the one that just popped in my head. Black Panther two was pretty good. Oh gosh, so good! But it was also sad. It was very it was sad. Like, it was very sad, uh, but it was it was really good though. It was very well done. What is your favorite piece of '80s pop culture? Not everyone is into this one, but I have to ask everybody. I have to think about it. So when you talk about pop, I just immediately think about Michael Jackson. Like, I going back to him. 
huge Michael Jackson fan. But the thing about like these, I don't, the genres and everything, I don't know how the classification of them always fits because in this, well, Earth, Wind & Fire is one of my favorite groups. They go over decades. So I don't know if they consider yeah. them the 80s. I mean, they got albums in the 80s too. Um, For sure. And I was born in the 80s. So, I mean, obviously, you know, Tina Turner got some stuff, but but that's rock and roll though. So then like, you just think like, what is actually pop? But I would just say the king of pop has to be Michael Jackson. What is your mantra right now? Until there's nothing that can be done, there's always something that can be done. And I call that a Harryism. It's a Harryism, not my mantra. It's a Harryism. So <laughs> that's why, like, and that, I think that that goes into love the um, solutions oriented thing. I so resonate with that. What is an unpopular opinion that you hold? Blue cheese is nasty. I don't like. Blue oh my cheese. gosh! Oh man! <laughs> Ranch Leave over blue, blue cheese, cheese alone. Ranch over blue cheese. That is my unpopular opinion. <laughs> Is oh dang it, so not with that one. But I hear you. I, I don't like. Can, I don't like blue cheese. I don't like blue cheese. But in true Harry form, I can appreciate and respect the people who do like blue cheese. <laughs> of course you do. But you're wrong. But you know. <laughs> <laughs> who or what inspires you to be a better leader and human? My daughter. That's the thing. People that inspire you, maybe they don't even know. They're the reason you're inspired. She's just existing. She has no clue. But just being able to set an example for her to do what's right um, and to leave the country, the world better than what we founded and the next generation. And she's the closest thing I have to the next generation. She is the, you know, so I can't. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time for this conversation. Um, it's so important. And I'm so glad that we finally have it. If folks want to connect with you, where could they connect with you if they want to just follow your work? And- if you come to the Capitol and say hi. Okay. <laughs> come to the Capitol and but say no, hi. I'm, um, I'm, on, I'm on social media, um, Instagram, threads, and um, X, Twitter. All under Libra Dunn, all under the same handle, Libra Dunn. I'm not into big into astrology or, you know, zodiac. It's astrologers, whatever. See, I'm not even, I don't know what it's called, but I do like being a Libra though. Well, make sure to like link to that and also link to your book, which I really enjoyed reading. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your service. And thank you for your leadership. And I hope I, I'm going to come visit you at the Capitol. So I'm gonna, I am going can't wait. Please don't say hi. I'm always there. I will. Thank you so much for your time. Please take care of you. Stay safe and stay true to your healing. You got it. Thank you. Before you go, I want to ensure you take away some important nuggets of wisdom Officer Dunn shared with us. First, though, I want to say thank you for listening to this special Unburdened Leader podcast as I honor my commitment to keep sharing stories from those who were there on January 6th so we can counter the many who want to change the narrative on what really happened that day. And Officer Dunn's commitment to his job after January 6th insurrection was curious to me, noting that a lot of people have a hard time after a traumatic event occurs where they work. But for Officer Dunn, his commitment to doing his job And protecting those who work on the Hill was more than just about protecting the people. It was protecting the institution. His focus was on this bigger mission, something bigger than him, 
that helped him heal as he continued with his work as a Capitol Police officer. And he reminded us to protect our peace with whom we engage and the power of sharing our story to encourage change. And Officer Don reminded us of the power to live an aligned life and how we use our integrity and values to inform how we respond to injustice. And this is the ongoing work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. And if this episode was particularly moving to you or you appreciated it, I'd be honored if you would leave a rating, a review, and share it with those that you think may benefit from it. You can find this episode, show notes, and free Unburdened Leader resources, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. And a special, special thank you to the folks at Yellow House Media who produced this episode. Thank you so much. Thank you.